Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host. I am here in New York City, down in Washington, D.C. We have Edward Luce of the Financial Times, and not too far from Washington, D.C., out there in horse country, of course, uh, with all the polo players. We have Rosa Brooks in Middleburg, Virginia, at uh, a, a retreat, a fancy retreat. Are there, like, canapes and fancy things like that at your retreat, Rosa? There, there are Canapes and PowerPoints. It's a winning combination. Um, yeah. What is like a law school retreat? Like, what do you talk <laughs> about? Like, you know, I mean, I, I just, I don't understand. You watch RBG over and over. I mean, what's like, what's going on? <laughs> it's very exciting, David. No, no, it's, it's actually kind of fun. I mean, people talk about their research and we also have interesting discussions about the future of the school and should we change our first year curriculum uh, all that kind of fun stuff. But but it's a, it's the only time of the year that I'm with all of my colleagues in a in a reasonably relaxed environment and proximity to a hot tub. Um, the wow. second is not actually good, but the Whoa. first is nice. Oh, my God. Now things all of a sudden seem a lot wilder at the Georgetown <laughs> University Law School than I thought they were. Um, uh, do, does the Financial Times do this, Ed? Do you get to go with, like... Uh, um, all the, the, the giant minds from the financial times and you like, I'll get in a hot tub and discuss the world. Does that happen? If it does, I'm delighted not to know about it because, uh, <laughs> hot tubs are not well, hot tubs with colleagues would not be my thing. Um, well, I, I have to admit, I'm kind of glad to hear that as well. So, uh, Ed, uh, you know, uh, we, we tape these things on, on Mondays. Usually it's Tuesday now. Um, so we're a little closer to the air date, which is Wednesday night. Um, uh, but I'd like to go back to last week, even if it seems kind of contrary to the news headlines, cause I was really struck with all of the news that came out of the Munich security conference. Um, and, uh, in part, uh, it, it, I was struck by it because, Every year I like to see it for sort of what's going on in terms of the transatlantic relationship. But in part, I was struck by it this year because Mike Pence went over there and made a pitch on behalf of the president of the United States uh, and was humiliated, humiliated by the cold reception he got. And Angela Merkel, who was treated like a conquering hero, I think people are starting to appreciate her as she comes to the end of her term, uh, also made some pretty uh, tough statements about uh, uh, Washington, and this made it a little uncomfortable for one of America's uh, leading foreign policy uh, thinkers, who was a representative there, Ivanka Trump, who uh, who didn't wear her headset on her head, I think, because it would have messed up her hair, but nonetheless looked irritated at Angela Merkel. And I was wondering what your takeaway was from this uh, summit of 
uh, you know, national security pandemics. Well, for, I, I think you know any summit on foreign policy that has the word Munich in it um, is already is already got a head start. <laughs> um, uh, and this this year's though was was very interesting because the first two years of Munich, Munich's been going on for many years, but uh, the first two years of Munich um, uh, uh, during the Trump administration, there was some receptivity to uh, to Trump. There was some, um, although he didn't attend personally, there was some receptivity to the Trump administration um, people there, including Mike Pence, that, okay, they want to recalibrate. This is a course correction. Let's see if we can do business with them. And this was the year where no pretense left about it. And, and you know, there are many sort of images and moments, viral moments, um, you know, which is unusual, um, uh, unusual for at least generally fairly tedious formulaic international conferences. But we've had two this year that have had many viral moments. One was Davos last month and the other was Munich this week. And uh, the first of the viral moments was Pence, his speech in which he mentioned Trump 30 times, twice as many times as he'd mentioned and, Trump. And that's, that's difficult. How long was his speech, Ed? I, I, wanted, uh, I want the Trump, Trump mentions per, per minute. I think it was like one a minute. Um, and it, was, it wasn't just beating his own record. Um, uh, 30 mentions in whatever it was, in 15, 20-minute speech, um, was double the previous number of mentions Pence had made at his previous Munich speech. But it was also way more than um, the speech given by Yang Jiechi, the senior Chinese person there, had mentioned Xi Jinping. So the autocratic... Um, um, government's speech uh, was less autocratic in terms of, you know, unadulterated praise for our great leader than the one Mike Pence gave about gave about Trump. And I think the viral moment there was him building up saying, and I bring you greetings from America's 45th president, uh, D Donald Trump. And there was complete silence. And clearly Pence, because he doesn't know what other people think of this administration or has zero EQ, was expecting applause. He paused there for applause and visibly looked rattled when it didn't come. Um, and I think the second was, you mentioned Angela Merkel's speech, you know, which was sort of Angela Merkel unbound. She's normally fairly restrained and judicious in her language, and she was uh, uh, not so restrained and judicious on this occasion was the standing ovation, the sort of whoops and cheers she got at the end of her speech, in which she really took on the whole America First um, worldview and Trump's um, um, trade war with Europe in particular. Um, and she got a standing ovation from everybody except Ivanka Trump. And if you remember, you know, again, in the first year or so of the Trump administration, Angela Merkel went out of her way to woo Ivanka Trump. She, she, along with most other world leaders, thought, well, the way to Trump is via his family. Um, and so she bit her tongue and, and um, swallowed her pride and flattered Ivanka and appeared on stage with her and paid her attention. Um, no more of that. No more of that. There's a, there's a kind of, right, we're done with, we're done with even trying to listen to these people. Um, we don't accept um, that they're going to change. In fact, they're getting worse. And, and Pence's speech, you know, where he, he calls on Europe to withdraw from the Iran, um, uh, from Jikpoa, um, went down extremely badly. Uh, yeah, well, no surprise. By the way, I'm sure Rosa appreciates your use of Jikpoa, which is the... I do, preferred. I do. 
the preferred pronunciation. I, um, I, sh I should have credited you, Rosa. Um, she's no, no, the and I'm, I'm happy for it to go viral. <laughs> As do all the clips of Ed on this show, which go out on the on the on uh, Twitter and elsewhere. Um, so, uh, Rosa, I, I don't I don't know. Have you been to a bunch of these Munich things? I've never been to Munich. I've never ever been to Munich, and they only invited me once, and I said I can't come, and then they never ever invited me back. Bastards. I, I don't know, even know. Bastards. I don't even know why we're talking about them. I think they're irrelevant. They um, are. They're outmoded, so go on. Go anachronistic. On. <laughs> yeah, I hate them. Yeah, I, and I hate them for you, and I'm sure Ed Thank does you. too. Ed, Thank do you, you hate them too? They're appeasers. They're they're all they're all appeasers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those that left some big scars there in the UK. I do want to get to 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 what's going on in the UK in a little bit later in this. Uh, but Rosa, what was your takeaway from all the headlines that came out of Munich? Some of which Ed has just recounted. Yeah, I mean the the. The only thing that I would add to what Ed said, I mean, you know, it was an embarrassment. Uh, it made it very, very clear that uh, nobody likes us anymore uh, and that we're increasingly isolated. But the only thing I would add is that I would like to be able to say, oh, and it looks like everybody else is, is coming together uh, on both policy, on, on policy issues, both within Europe and outside of Europe. Uh, but I'm not sure that's the case. I think I think that although it certainly highlighted the complete isolation of the United States, the Munich also highlighted the fact that there is not really a common front on many issues other than hating the United States amongst the major European players at the moment, uh, that, that Europe is in many ways uh, remains in substantial disarray. And and I know we're going to talk in a few minutes about uh, about uh, Brexit and so forth. I think you you said, um, but but uh, the rift between the French and the Germans was on full display. The rift between the Italians and everybody else was on full display, uh, as well as the rift between the U.S. and everybody else. Um, yeah, do you? I mean, I I saw some exchanges. I had a conversation with somebody, and they're like, "Well, we'll never recover from this." But don't I mean? Do you know? Don't you think you know? You know, you get a Democratic president or something, and in a couple of years, um, we we could all bounce back pretty quickly. I think everybody wants it to go back. It's just a kind of a small faction in the U.S. that screwed it up. Or do you think I have that wrong? No, I, I think I think in terms of the transatlantic relationship, certainly, I think if Trump Trump goes in twenty twenty the twenty twenty elections, uh, yes, I think that relationships with our European allies are are, are pretty much back to normal. Uh, whether whether we can reset in terms of the rest of the world, I think is a lot less clear. Whether we can reset in terms of overall global influence is a lot less clear. Uh, whether we can reset in terms of the you know internal damage Trump is doing to the United States is is a lot less clear as well. Um, but at least with regard to our European allies, I think that they'd be. We saw something very similar happen, obviously, with the George W. Bush administration. Um, there was an enormous rift between the U.S. and our allies uh, uh, over things like uh, the Iraq war invasion with regard to many European states, uh, with regard to the U.S. Uh, use of torture, with regard to indefinite detention and so forth. Um, 
that, you know, that I, and I think we all feared, oh, no, you know, is this going to be permanent? And then Obama was elected and all was, all was largely forgiven. Uh, most was forgiven anyway. Um, so I, I think that the, <laughs> the capacity to forgive on the part of our allies remains pretty substantial, uh, which doesn't mean that no damage has been done that's permanent. But, but I think at least on the level of collaboration, we would be back to normal. Uh, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, Ed, of course, Trump could win again. And you could have six years of this kind of alienation. Uh, and, uh, you know, that might take a bigger toll, right? I mean, six years of this, throw in, you know, Britain contracting at 7% a year for six years, throw in the rise of nationalism. Throw, you could end up with a very different picture of Europe, right? Yeah, and we've got European parliamentary elections coming up in May, and normally they're, they're not hugely important except as protest votes um, because European Parliament doesn't have a huge amount of power. Um, people feel that's a safer forum to you know, vote for the extremes, but I think they're going to be a lot more seriously um, observed this time round, and it looks like the the far right, um, you know, which are banding together and cooperating, Steve Bannon style across borders, are going to do pretty well. Um, the Party of Na Europe of Nations um, the group in the European Parliament, which includes, you know, Orban, Le Pen, and others. Um, uh, I think, in terms of European cooperation, you know, without American leadership or with America's active undermining of it. You know, there is still some on some basic areas, such as um, on the Iran deal. Uh, you know, this is one of the rare moments where you do see Merkel, Macron and May sticking together um, and, and rejecting um, Pence's um, exhortations. Uh, but I largely agree with Rosa that, uh, you know, without, without a positive United States involved, there isn't really much Europe, European, uh, pan-European foreign policy substance to speak of. Um, and it's going in the wrong direction. Macron pointedly did not go to the Munich conference this year because uh, he, he let it be known, or at least his advisors did through the French media, that he's kind of bored of trying to establish a grand reformist project with Merkel and finding that she's not really um, not, not really got the appetite or the domestic authority to to, to deliver anymore. And Macron himself, of course, is now beset by his own domestic problems. Um, and although the French, you know, the next elections are, are five years away, uh, um, are three years away, he's, you know, if, if, if they were held now, he would not be re-elected. So uh, it's very hard to see who the adult in the room is. People did applaud Merkel for standing up and being the, the moral superpower. Uh, but she's on her way out too. Um, so I, I, I broadly I broadly agree with Rosa's um, diagnosis there, that this is, you know, this is a West, we, we are, we are kind of, we're already into the post-West period. Wow. Um, well, Rosa, uh, you know, every time things really go bad, we turn to the British for leadership. And, uh, you know, and the, the, ongoing success of the British Empire, of course, is one of the reasons we do that. Um, uh, but um, uh, there is a, a, an example of the past week that some people here in the United States have sort of 
grabbed at um, uh, as a potential straw, which is that the Labour Party uh, in the UK seems to be coming apart at the seams because of its, um, I don't know, the anti-Semitism of its leader, the bad leadership of its leader, its uh, you know confusing uh, or wrong positions on Brexit, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and seven people fragmented off into another group and and now others have joined them. Uh, and I'm just and some people said, well, maybe the Republican Party could do this, but I don't really see any signs that there is a single principled Republican elected official in Washington who would ever think about doing that. Do you? Uh, <laughs> no, apparently not. <laughs> I mean, it's fantastically depressing. Uh, I, you know, and, and I, I don't know what to think about the concept of a possible third party in the United States, which which we're always talking about. Obviously, uh, last time around, we had Bernie. We we've had we've had very we've had various third party candidates as as pure spoilers in recent years. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know Donald Trump, I think, certainly illustrates, if nothing else, the the complete and utter brokenness of the. American two-party system, um, you know, makes it seem like it would be nice to have a viable third party, but but I can I cannot see uh, either on the Republican side or for that matter on the Democratic side where you would get the the people, you know, the critical mass to to lead some sort of viable third party, uh, and I certainly think that um, the recent the most recent example that we had of whether Republicans were willing to peel away from Trump was was over the confirmation hearing of uh, now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, when we saw that despite making various noises about their consciences and being troubled and so on, uh, the, the Republicans, so-called moderates, uh, basically went with Trump in the end and voted for Kavanaugh. Uh, so when push comes to shove, um, even those Republicans who make occasional disapproving noises about Donald Trump have tended to stick right with them. Uh, okay. Uh, Ed, do you want to comment on this development that's taken place in the UK with regard to the Labour Party and the apparent commitment of all of the people of the United Kingdom to drive off a cliff together uh, in just a matter of weeks? Yeah, it's 40 or so days now. Um, just a sort of quick point about um, third party candidates in this country, though. Um, uh, I think that I think that the, the chances of um, a primary challenge to Trump in the Republican process, not one that would defeat him, but one that could wound him badly from somebody like Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, um, are rising and uh, very, very sharply, uh, particularly after he declared this national emergency. There are a lot of um, genuine sort of uh, genuine conserv conservatives who fear the power of an over overreaching executive, um, who I think could get a 10-15% showing in places like New Hampshire, um, and much as Pat Buchanan did to George Bush Sr. in 92, wound Trump badly um, in a primary process. So I wouldn't rule that out. But in terms of, you know, parties splitting and new ones potentially forming. The seven Labour members who left this week, um, 
illustrated. They, none of them, were, apart from one, Chakaruna, um, none of them were very big figures in the Labour Party, but there's nevertheless seven um, out of 250 or so members of parliament who left, and more might, might follow. Uh, one of them, Luciana Berger, who's a mem member of parliament from Liverpool, who, who's Jewish, said that the um, she feared that anti-Semitism was now, she felt that anti-Semitism was now institutionalized in the Labour Party, uh, to which one, one Labour member said, look, this split is funded by Israel, <laughs> which kind of proved her, proved her point. This is a Mossad plot to split the Labour Party. Um, I don't think that it's enough um, at this point to stop Brexit, uh, but it is the nucleus of a group of centrist pro-European members of parliament to represent the half of the British population, which is now completely disenfranchised because both Britain's major parties are in favour of Brexit in one form or other. Um, and so if this group in the next 40 days, it's a very, very tall order, can start getting um, the Conservative pro-Europeans and other Labour pro-Europeans and start cooperating with the Liberal Democratic Party, which is very small but is pro-European, then you could see a realignment, the beginnings of a realignment in British politics. But I think it's too little, too late. Uh, 40 days is just is just not enough. Uh, you, so, so what's going to happen? That's a very good question. Uh, there is one, there is one um, rabbit that May can put out of the hat, which is she can postpone. Uh, Article 50 gives you two years from when you invoke it till you end it, and at the end of it you have to leave, and that date's March the 29th. Um, she could unilaterally, uh, European lawyers have, have ruled on this, um, she could unilaterally postpone Article 50 for two, three months and people in Brussels wouldn't object. Um, you know, Germany's on the verge of recession. If Trump puts tariffs on European car exports, it might well push Germany into recession. And if a hard Brexit happens, it might well push Germany into a pretty deep recession because of so many of its exports go to Britain. Um, so nobody in Europe wants a hard Brexit. Um, it's just chaos, it just, it's a slowing economy. It would just slow it further, if not tip it. Um, she could do that, but it wouldn't resolve anything. It would just postpone by 60 days or so um, the inevitable, um, which is a hard Brexit. She's not been able to... Um, she's not been able to change the weather in favour of her really low-caliber plan to leave Europe. Um, she thinks her best bargaining tool is to threaten hard Brexit, both at home with recalcitrant recalcitrants uh, at home who won't vote for her plan and with Brussels. Um, and it's, of course, a natural negotiating tactic is to threaten the most extreme scenario. But the, the problem with with that sort of gambler's instinct is you've got to be able to control the game to deliver it. And she, if her bluff is called, um, she might not be able to, to prevent this hard Brexit that she's bluffing in threatening. So um, I, I, don't, I don't have a prediction for Britain, except to say my hopes uh, from a few weeks ago that this might become a second referendum um, and that Britain might be able to reverse this horrendous mistake, this life-altering mistake, um, those hopes have faded. Um, and I think, as I've said to you before, I'm, I'm less bleak about America's ability to reverse things than I am Britain's. Before I, I get to Rosa and talk about the decline of our alliances 
outside of the U.S. We focus a lot on the decline inside. I want to just ask you a quick question, Ed. Did you follow the speech a couple of weeks ago by the Birmingham MP Jess Phillips on how, how yes. Brits defy skilled workers? I thought it was fantastic. I decided she was my Democratic presidential candidate, but perhaps this is uh, pre, you know, premature. Do you have a can you give me an informed view on this? Yeah, I mean, I see this. There's another guy called Lammy um, who's given a couple of really impassioned, just really authentic speeches about what it's like not to be, uh, you know, a metropolitan Londoner um, and just how um, ignorant the political and other media elites are in London about um, what, what, how people make two ends meet outside of London. And she, she just gave a very attractive anecdotal illustration um, of, um, of, of the economic realities facing most ordinary British people. Anyway, she's, she's incidentally a pro-European, um, but a pro-European with a, a, a very authentic um, working class um, grassroots background who speaks in a language most people understand um, and in a very practical way and, and, and self-deprecating, not taking herself too seriously, which goes down well in that setting, in the, in the British setting. Um, and there are a lot of those quite talented people around on the backbenches. Um, and, and so, you know, it's not all bleak. There are some very good people in British politics who are tearing their hair out um, at, at what a, a, um, a self-inflicted disaster um, this is. And um, I can only say that I, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad there are some of them because at times I, you know, when I when I observe the front benches, as it were, of British politics, I despair for Britain's future. Well, you know, when I look at the world, you know, we again, Rosa, you know, we tend to be as a country rather narcissistic. You know, was surprised we ended up with a narcissistic president. But you know, we talk about our decline and our problems and the things that we have done. Um, but you know, if you look at you know sort of American security and who do we work with. Um, you know, you, the British have been a primary partner and they're working hard to weaken themselves dramatically, potentially six, seven percent a year in terms of GDP, but also uh, uh, alienating themselves from the Europeans, uh, causing potential problems with Northern Ireland, et cetera. Um, you know, in the Middle East, we depended on the Israelis who have gone com increasingly sort of off the reservation. Um, on, a, on a number of issues. Not and speak of the Saudis, who are also completely off the reservation. The Saudis, who, uh, who are, you know, odious in the extreme, uh, and they've been the kind of pillars of our partnership there. Of course, Egypt was also important to that partnership there, and they, um, uh, you know, have crumbled from within and not recovered um, from that. Uh, and... Uh, you know, it's quite possible that we get to the far side of Trump and we end up saying, OK, well, let's restore, you know, the world as we know it. And and a lot of the world won't look the same. You know, we've got problems in Europe with hard right nationalist groups gaining um, uh, some power. Um, and if you combine all that stuff and then have uh you know, U.S. changed relationships with some allies because of Trump or or or, yeah. or, or even redeployment. The world's just not it's not going to be like, OK, let's hit the reset button. Things are going to be different. I think that's right. And and I think that 
the the so-called West in general uh, and the U.S. in particular are in for a pretty rough ride in the next you know five to ten years um, for the reasons that you mentioned. I, I mean, I think the the combination of of uh, overt military conflicts that are reshaping some states and greatly discrediting others, um, uh, internal conflicts that have not turned into overt military conflicts, but that are ripping apart the the politics of various U.S. allies, um, e.g. Uh, in the U.K., uh, uh, as well as tensions over more nationalistic party between more nationalistic parties and more cosmopolitan oriented parties in numerous other European states. Uh, Israel's, you know, apparently, unfortunately, irreversible shift to the the far right. Um, you know, all of these things do not bode well for a, a healthy so-called West. Um, and indeed the at the very moment, as we've talked, as we've discussed many times before, at the very moment that ideally the U.S. should be using what power it still has to strengthen and reshape uh, international and regional institutions, um, we have withdrawn. Uh, the Russia, the Russians are doing the same thing. Uh, we're seeing on the part of all of the largest powers, uh, an increasing willingness, not just on the part of U.S., but on the part of China as well, uh, and Russia as well, to thumb their noses pretty openly at international legal standards um, and rulings of international tribunals. Uh, things are things are bad, um, and things are not likely to get dramatically better anytime soon. Um, I, no, and, and as you know, since my job on this podcast is to be more apocalyptic than anybody else, uh, uh, I think that there are plenty of good reasons to be very, very frightened about even if Trump is defeated in 2020, even if the U.S. is able to restore its alliances, as, as uh, even if the U.S. is able to undo some of the domestic damage Trump has done, uh, it's not clear that it's going to do us a, a whole lot of good when it comes to dealing with the greatest global problems that we're facing. And at this point, I would put uh, climate change and global migration at the tippy top um, of the problems that we're likely to be, the serious geopolitical problems that we're likely to be facing for the next decade or so, that we just, we don't have the institutions uh, we need to help us, the alliances that we are likely to have in five years or 10 years uh, are probably not the alliances that we're going to need. Ah, that's a really good point. And of course, we're going to spend the next two years for sure not discussing what the future of alliances uh, look like. And we are also going to have a period where discussions like the one in Munich end up being discussions that don't really have the U.S. at the table. And so other people's views are going to end up in this, which is, you know, fine to to a degree. But Ed, I'm just wondering if you share the pessimism when you look around and, you know, Canada's having a political crisis. That, you know, we have a new leader in Mexico who I got a feeling is going to come off the rails pretty soon as kind of a populist and, and uh, has, you know, got some real potential problems there. Um, who knows where, you know, Trump's going to take us with North Korea, but he could quite easily um, sell out or undermine the government in South Korea. It seems like he's been heading in that direction for some time. 
Chinese are getting stronger, the Russians are getting stronger uh, geopolitically, even if not economically. Um, it just it it seems like the ingredients of our alliances are decaying even as the institutions themselves are either being undermined or sort of growing obsolete. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, Canada is a very interesting example. I mean, if, if you'd asked even a year ago who's holding the torch for the West, um, you'd have said Macron, Trudeau and Merkel. Um, and all three in one way or another are diminished figures and um, look like they're going to see further um, diminution in the next in the coming months. Um, so they're, they're, they've got less time and less domestic leeway to play the kinds of international roles we were hoping they would play. One thing I would say, to take it back to Munich, you know, if you want the West to exist um, and act consciously like the West, like an alliance um, and a, 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 a block in the world with a worldview that how to take the world forward, um, you you're likely to have it if, if it feels some sense of threat. And I think if Pence had turned up and he had spoken um, about China and given a speech about China, instead of hectoring Europe to pull out of the Iran deal, um, which isn't going to happen, um, had talked about building, you know, common values to contain China or at least to shape China, uh, China's emergence on the world stage to, if you brought up Huawei, if you talked about the common security challenges we all face, uh, then I think he would have uh, had a receptive audience. But of course, he wasn't allowed to give that kind of speech. Uh, he's allowed to give anti-China speeches, as he's given before, but he's not allowed to give anti-China speeches in the context of working together with America's allies, because Trump doesn't see any difference. He sees China and Germany in just the same way. They're both trying to rip, rip us off. Um, and uh, Pence didn't attempt to overstep that mark by saying, look, we we already had a plan in place for China. It was called the TPP and, and various other approaches, um, because that would have crossed a red line and that would have um, made him um, ma made him even more likely to be ejected as Trump's running mate next year. Um, so he didn't say that. But if he did, if he had said that hypothetically, um, based, you know, I was in Europe last week. I, I was at a conference in Oslo, um, and in fact, I came back via Munich, um, although not to the to the Munich conference. But talking to Europeans, they're all sharing the concerns um, that Americans have about China, um, about cyber uh, um, vulnerability to the Chinese, about the race to you know be the world's AI champion. And they're all tightening up in one way or another, although the British have been an exception. They're allowing Huawei in limited ways to still participate in Britain's 5G network. But there would be a receptive audience there, and this would be a reason to, um, this would be a reason to renew the West and give it an urgency and a challenge um, that would bind the West together, I think. It would also pose interesting questions about how you deal with Russia, um, which might be quite difficult ones to, to deal with here in Washington, because right now Russia and China are getting closer and closer together. And if you, you know, that's kind of reverse, reverse Nixon Kissinger. And you'd want to find ways of breaking them off from each other. Um, but uh, it's not as if the West is over, but I think it has to, it has to have a threat in order to exist. Um, and, and China is posing 
genuine threat in many areas. Um, I don't think it's an evil empire, um, as Tom Cotton and others are now starting to call China, and I think that's dangerous rhetoric. But China does pose a challenge um, to uh, to values, to um, and to, to international order ultimately, which could bind the West together with a better Amer American administration in charge. Um, you know, Rosa, I think I'm going to join you. Uh, could you just break <laughs> off a bit of We're that? We're done. We're this, done. <laughs> that thorny crown of entropy, um, uh, because as I as I listen, I just. I mean, do you see like any sort of green shoots of creativity on these issues anywhere? No. No, I do not. Ed, do you want some of the green, the thorny crown of entropy? Because I think, you know, there just might be enough to go around. You know, I love I love these. I forget the name of this Swedish 16-year-old, um, but I love these school kids demonstrating uh, about climate change. Um, you know, it's it's going viral. Um, across European capital, capitals in New York. I love the fact that kids on Fridays are saying, we're not going to the school. We're going out there and saying, there's no planet B. Uh, this is our future, and we don't want you to screw it up. I, I, you know, there's, there's stuff like that going on. It's not going to stitch together any global alliances. But I like the fact that kids really care about this because they should, and they seem to care more than we do. Yeah, okay, um, I'll go with that. The kids. The kids are all right. How the about kids your, are all right. Oh, yeah, another good reference in the, the second podcast reference this week of, <laughs> you know, sort of ancient rock and roll music. Um, aren't your kids going to save the planet, Rosa? Well, I, I sure hope they get cracking uh, on it. They, they haven't saved it yet. So maybe maybe next year. How about like your living room? Have they? Have they I mean, just <laughs> they start... haven't even saved the living room. <laughs> in fact, every time they're in it, things get even more entropic. <laughs> they start. They start small. Um, uh, Ed, would you encourage your own daughter to to like take Fridays off to save the planet? She's saving the planet one cat at a time. Yeah, she's up against some pretty tough odds there. She's she's up against a fossil fuel <laughs> parrot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, no, that's uh, that's a uh, um, pretty pretty grim. But I, you know, I mean, I one of the things that struck me uh, just before we wrap up here is uh, there's been some talk about Eric Swalwell uh, entering the Democratic field, and you know, you have Bernie entering, and he'll be 80 in his first year in office, and you have Biden entering, and he he'd be 78, I guess, when he would be inaugurated if he were to get inaugurated. And I don't think those guys are going to win, but. Swalwell is different from the rest of the field because um, he's 38. And I was thinking, you know, there's something to be said for electing a president who's got to live in the country for the next 50 years. You know, I mean, Bernie could be wrong and it could have precious little effect on him. I'm not saying that that's what motivates him, but there's something about having younger generations uh, uh, run for office because the consequences mean more to them. Doesn't that make sense? Guys, somebody, maybe. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, there's a one to two percent chance um, that the temperature rises will actually go way beyond the upper range that you know the UNPCC is talking about of of three to four percent. There's a one to two percent chance of a six percent, a six a six degree um, rise centigrade rise in temperatures by the end of this century. Um, which is catastrophic, so the species extinction level. If you remember Dick Cheney's 1% doctrine, if there's a 1% chance of an attack happening, 
you know, chemical, anthrax, whatever, from terrorists, we should treat it as though it's 100% probability. Um, well, this is a species extinction, one to 2% chance by the end of this century. And, you know, my daughter's 12. Um, kids, kids born, you know, after the turn of this millennium, she was born in 2006, um, uh, are going to live to 100. Um, they have a 50-50 chance of living 100 to 100, according to demographers. So uh, she's going to be around in 2100. And I, I, I would apply the Cheney Doctrine to that. That's a good argument. Rosa, I don't know about you, but I find the thought that somebody who was born in 2006 is 12 to be more depressing than the prospect of a species extinction event taking place in 80 years. I'm sorry, David, could you repeat that? Somebody was knocking loudly at my my door here at the Salamander Resort, and I couldn't hear the last thing you said. Yeah, hot tub party time for the Georgetown Law School. <laughs> I just, I said, I, I find the discussion uh, that the, the, the notion that Ed's daughter was born in 2006 and is 12 to be more disturbing than the potential for the extinction of the species in 80 years. <laughs> I know. I find it. I find it quite disturbing that I have a daughter who's seventeen years old, who was born in this century. She was, a, but she was a post nine eleven baby, so she's very much a millennial. Wow. Um, well, I got to say, I personally don't have much uh, faith in in the baby boom generation to solve these problems that. They largely created. So I do, I, I, I share Ed's enthusiasm for these uh, uh, green shoots from younger generations. Uh, I'm just was looking for something more positive to end on because the other points are that the entire planet's going to be over in a few decades. And between now and then, it's going to be chaotic because all of our alliances are going to collapse because of what we do and because of what they do. Uh, and there's no sign of fixing that. So that's you know, I think reason enough to have a drink when you're in the hot tub, Rosa. Um, and Ed, I know that you don't need an excuse to have a, a drink. And I hope your <laughs> butler immediately brings a lovely sherry to your side or whatever it is you it doesn't drink. Doesn't even it, need to be asked. It's just always just there. Just clockwork. Clockwork. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. Um, uh, meanwhile, here in New York, I live over a pizzeria, and I think that's going to be my solution. Um, in any event. Thank you guys for this episode of Deep State Radio. Thank you, everybody out there, for joining us for this episode of Deep State Radio. Uh, please go to deepstateradionetwork.com. Listen to Washington for Beautiful People, which is doing some great work, um, has had some great conversations. Listen to National Security Magazine, where we're also having some great conversations. Uh, we've got some new uh, things coming, not too uh, far down the pike now. And, uh, of course, there are articles and daily briefs and weekly technology briefs and all other kinds of things. And if you're a member, you get access to all of them right whenever you want it. And you get a mug or a t-shirt or a water bottle, or I don't even know, there may be some Christmas ornaments left. So go sign up, be a member. It's a menchy thing to do. It helps make the deep state go round. You need us. Read the McCabe book. The deep state are the heroes of this story, and uh, and we're the heroes of the deep state. So we'll be back soon. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Rosa. Bye-bye, all. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with 
Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.